if you turn to Acts chapter 28. Acts chapter 28. We are finally at the end of the book of Acts in our series, The Early Church. Um, I, I hope that you've gotten something out of the series. I hope that you feel challenged uh, to do better in your Christian walk. Not that you weren't doing good, but we can always improve. Uh, my hope is that as a church, as the people who make up the church that are gathered here, that we, we know that we have a mission and that we have something that we need to be doing in our community that we might not have been as intentional about and bring in some intentionality behind what we're trying to do. But we've talked about how the early church was empowered by the Holy Spirit, meaning that they were given the gifts necessary to reach their community. So for us, that means that everyone in this room who's a member of the church, who attends this church regularly, we have everything that we need to reach our community. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't need other things or that other things can be improved because we always need to draw people in to make our mission and our ministry stronger. But right now, we don't have to wait. We can do everything that we need to do right now. Uh, we also talked about how they shared the gospel frequently. They were committed to discipleship. They did everything together. They endured persecution. They saw healing. And all those things are possible for our church too. As we wrap up our series right now, this is a really heavy message. At least it has been for, for my life this week. Um, so, as Jackie would say, strap up your, your steel-toed boots. Um, because if it hits you the way that it hit me this week, some of you might not be able to walk out of here. And I, I say that lightheartedly, but also to be serious. Because this is going to be a hard message for me to preach. But I think it's the truth, and I believe that this is where God has been leading us through this series. So... If you just walked in and you haven't been coming here, I'm sorry <laughs> that this is what you walked in on, uh, but uh, just bear with me. If you would uh, look at Acts 28, we're going to start in verse 23. <clears throat> I'm just going to read the last part of this chapter. They arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came in even larger numbers to take place where he was staying. He witnessed to them from morning till evening, explaining the kingdom of God, and from the law of Moses, from the prophets, he tried to persuade them about Jesus. Some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. They disagreed amongst themselves and began to leave after Paul had made his final statement. The Holy Spirit spoke the, the truth to your ancestors when he said this through Isaiah the prophet. Go to this people and say, you will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become callous. They hardly hear with their ears. They have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. For two years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. If you would pray with me. Heavenly Father, 
as you give me this opportunity to speak your word, Lord, I pray that you would speak through me. That when people leave today, they don't hear me yelling at them, they don't hear me talking to them or talking at them, but that they hear you speaking to their heart. Lord, I pray that you open up our hearts to hear your message, to truly hear it and to understand it. Open up our eyes, open up our heart to understand, open up our ears to hear. Lord, we are so grateful to be in your presence today. And so, Lord, I just ask that you speak to us because that's what we came here for. We came for that you, so that you would speak to us through the pastor. And, Lord, as the pastor, speak through me as you always do. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So there's a thing that um, is very common in movies and TV shows and in books. Um, and it's just the way, because all of them are written, they start written, they have a script. If it's a movie or a TV show, if it's a book, then that is the script, you're reading the script. But there's a thing, in it, and it's in literature, I learned it in uh, English class from several years ago. But it, every story follows this very similar pattern. And it follows this similar pattern because we all love it. We respond well to it. So I'm going to tell you what this pattern is. I forget what it's called. Um, it has something to do with like a pyramid. But it starts with the exposition. The exposition phase is where it builds the character. There's character development. There's, uh, they're building the world for you so that you can get into the story. And then there's the rising action, right? Some of you, you know, you're kind of understanding. You're, you're picking up where I'm, what I'm throwing down. The rising action, there's conflict, there's tension, it begins to build. There's the antagonist of the story, the villain of the story that's, that's coming in, and there's this conflict that happens, so the action starts to rise. Then there's the climax, which is the turning point, right? If it's, if it's a sports movie or a sports TV show, it's when the underdogs, they finally get the ball, and it's the final drive of the play, and they throw the touchdown pass, and they win. Uh, if it's a hero movie, it's when the... That's the turning point where the villain doesn't seem to have the upper hand anymore. It's now in the hero's hand. It's, you know, for the women in the room. If it's a romance movie, it's when the guy and the girl they kiss, right? It, it's, it's that moment. And then there's the falling action. It's what happens after it, it starts to, to decrease. The, the heroes, they win, and, and now they're just left to see what winning is like, um, the the sports team, you know, they're all celebrating together. This is the falling action. And then there's the resolution, which is what happens afterwards. And the resolution is what we really like because we like to see everything come to a good ending. And Disney would put it as they lived happily ever after. Now, we love these stories because the conflict creates a tension that draws our attention. And it makes us feel good when the underdog or when the heroes win or when the couple gets together at the end. But there's something else in written stories that happen a lot, especially if it's a series or a TV series or a, a movie series, and that's cliffhangers. We all, have, we all know what cliffhangers are, and a good cliffhanger will leave you with more questions than answers because it leaves you with an unresolved potential conflict. Cliffhangers in movies nowadays tend to be after the credits, after the first or second set of credits. That's where they're putting their cliffhanger so that you want to go and watch the next movie. 
Now, I really like Marvel movies, the superhero movies. I watch them uh, as much as I can. And they always do this. They always have, you know, they have two scenes because they want you to watch all of the credits, which no one does. We're just waiting for the next scene to come up. But they put the scene after there. So they, they do a really good resolution with most of their movies. And then they draw in this cliffhanger at the end. And that's to, to draw your attention to want you to go watch their next movie, the next part of that series of movies, whatever it is. The same thing, I think, happens in the book of Acts. Now, you might not see it, and that's fine. Um, but the author, Luke, ends the book of Acts with somewhat of a cliffhanger. Now, what I'm going to try and do for the next couple minutes is help you to see this cliffhanger if you haven't already seen it. Because there's some unresolved things in Paul's life, which is what we've been talking about for the past several weeks. Paul's life, which is basically half of the book of Acts, there's unresolved things that we don't know what actually happens. So here's one. We don't know, we don't get to see. Luke doesn't write about it. None of the New Testament talks about what happens to Paul after Rome. All we know is that Paul spent two years in Rome under house arrest. And he was preaching the gospel, and that's how Luke ends it. And, and we're, like, we're kind of left with, well, what happened to him? What happened after, after the two years? Now, to put this in a little bit of perspective, imagine, like, just imagine what your favorite TV show is. Right? Think of like a, a murder mystery or something. And your favorite main character gets arrested for murdering someone that they didn't murder, right? They get all set up and they go on trial. They get arrested for this. And at the, at the, towards the end of the movie or the, the TV show, it's the series finale, right? This is how they're just gonna end all of it. And they're, they're on trial and they give their last statement and the jury goes behind closed doors to decide the fate of if this guy is going to get executed, if he's going to stay in prison, or if he's going to be set free. And as you're sitting there watching this happen, words pop up on the screen, and he was there for two more years, and then it's done. How frustrating would that be? I mean, like, if that was your favorite TV show, and that's how it ended, you'd be like, what? What happened to him? Did he get set free? He didn't do it. Like, he didn't do anything wrong. Did he get set free? And sometimes TV shows do end like that. And people are always asking the director, like, what happens next? That's up to you to decide. Well, this is kind of what Luke does. He's like, he was there for two more years and he preached the gospel. And we're left wondering, what happened to Paul? Here's another thing that um, goes kind of unnoticed and kind of gets slipped under the cracks of an unresolved part of Paul's life is if you look in the book of Romans in chapter 15 and 16, he talks about his plans to go to Spain. He talks about how he's wanting to go to Spain to go and preach the gospel to the people in Spain. And as he's writing this letter to the Romans, as he's walking and, and traveling towards Rome, he, he says, I'm going to be with you guys for a little bit, but then I'm going to go to Spain because no one from Spain has heard the gospel yet. 
Right? So Paul knew his mission. His mission was to share the gospel with the lost people. And he didn't necessarily, even though he does indicate that he might return to Ephesus and um, all of the other cities that he had been at before, it's not his main goal because he set people there. He trained people, he discipled people and left people there to lead the, to lead the movement there. But he was always looking for the next person. He was always looking for the next mission. But we don't know if he actually made it to Spain because it never mentions it in scripture. Now, granted, we do have some historical documents that indicate that he might have made it to Spain. But they're really honestly kind of vague. And so since scripture is vague and historical evidence is vague, I'm not really sure if he made it or not. I can't say for sure. Now, church tradition will say that um, he did make it to Spain. He was in Spain for a couple years. And as he was going back on his planned visit to visit Ephesus and check up on Timothy, that that's when Rome captured him again. And that's when Nero came into power and did the Christian massacre. Others will say that the whole thing that happened in Rome that eventually killed Paul was all before he went to Spain. But since we don't really know, I can't really give you uh, a for sure answer on that. I don't feel comfortable giving you a for sure answer. But I think that's the point. I believe that Luke could have easily continued the book of Acts up until his own martyred death. I think that he chose to end the book of Acts with an open-ended statement. And that statement is this. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. New Living Translation puts it this way, and I love how they put it. Boldly proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ and no one tried to stop him. No one tried to stop him. Now, this is such a turn. If you've been uh, throughout this series, if you've watched online or if you've been following, everyone was trying to stop the spread of this gospel because it threatened the Jewish people. It threatened the Jewish government. And so all of throughout the book of Acts, these Jewish leaders are trying to stop the movement, trying to stop the, the spread of the gospel. Now, likely what's happening is that Christianity wasn't threatening Rome yet. We know that it will, but it's not threatening it yet. And so Paul has these two years of peace to spread the gospel as much as he wants to. Now, he's still under house arrest, but they're letting him preach whatever he wants to because it's not a threat to their government. Whereas in all of the earlier stages of the book of Acts, it was all threatening to the leadership of Jerusalem. But this is, this is Rome. But if you know early church history at all, you know that eventually Emperor Nero would come into power and he would begin a Christian massacre. Now, during this massacre, how it would all start was that Emperor Nero ordered that half of Rome would be burned down. And he'd burn down half of Rome and blame it on the Christians. He said the Christians burned down our city to start an uproar within the city so that everyone that was a citizen of Rome was wanting to kill these Christians too. And it honestly included some very graphic ways that they killed Christians, two of them including. Uh, I'll give you two examples. One of them was that they would take wild animal skins and sew it onto Christians. 
And, and not just like, you know, putting it on, like covering them, like sewing it on to where if they took off these animal skins, their own skin would f- come off too. And they would starve dogs and wolves and other animals until they were almost about to die from starvation and they'd throw them in a ring with them and they'd be eaten alive. If you've ever um, celebrated 4th of July with things called Roman candles, there's a reason that they're called Roman candles. And the first Roman candles that ever existed were Christians who were dipped in wax and oil and put on high stakes, burned to death, to light the streets in Rome and to light Emperor Nero's own personal garden. Now, these are just two examples of the very graphic and barbaric ways that that Christians were killed for their faith. So don't think for a second that Satan's not going to stop, not going to try to stop the spread of the gospel. Just because there's two years of peace, it led to a lot of years of horror. But these two years, when no one tried to stop Paul, signify something very different for us today. They weren't just two years of peace. It was signifying that the mission of spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ, God will not allow it to be stopped. Luke keeps it open-ended to call us to be the next chapter, to call us to be the next chapter of the story. He's like, hey, Paul's life might not be done, but your life is starting now. Yeah, we're, we're, I'm gonna end it here in Acts 28, And I'm going to end it with, you know, this is what Paul, this is how Paul ended his life. But your life is starting now. He's calling us as the reader thousands of years later to say, you're the next one. And it's up to us to boldly proclaim the kingdom of God and to teach about Jesus and to let nothing stop us from carrying out the mission that Christ gave us to go and make disciples, to baptize, and to teach them to obey his commands. And honest goodness, I think in the Western church here in America, we have gone far too long with the peace that we have. We're sharing the gospel isn't a priority anymore. We're discipling others isn't a priority anymore. It's all about pe- getting people into the church just to hear some preacher c- preach and then leave and go and live your life however you want to. We become lazy in discipling others. We become lazy in sharing the gospel with the lost because we assume everyone is saved. We assume everyone's been discipled and we assume everyone knows the Lord. We have, in some sense of the phrase, lost our urgency to fight the good fight of faith, to share the gospel, to reach our communities, to disciple others. But Luke is telling us it's our responsibility to continue the story of the worldwide spread of the gospel. Now, if you do know early church history, you know that even after all of the persecutions, the the gospel never stopped spreading. In fact, within 300 years from the start of the 12 disciples starting the first early church until about 300 years later, it would become the official religion of the Roman Empire. Christianity would. 
and it would continue to spread to be the largest religion that's in the world today. So it's not going to stop. God's not going to allow it to stop. The question is, do you want to be a part of that story? Do you want to be a part of the story of continuing the global reach of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Now, I don't want any necessarily any answers or confessions right now, but if I ask you, and I want you to reflect on this question, how are you continuing the work of the book of Acts? Think about it for a minute. For your own personal life, how are you continuing the work of the book of Acts? Now, to help you kind of formulate an answer, I have two other questions for you. Because these are two very main themes in the book of Acts that happened throughout the whole thing. When was the last time you shared the gospel with an unbeliever? And who are you currently discipling? If you're a believer, who are you currently discipling? Now, I know if you're a parent, you should be discipling your kids. And that's kind of an easy answer. Well, I'm discipling my kids. But again, I ask, who are you discipling outside of your kids? Now, this is where it gets hard. This is where the hard truth comes in. But I believe it is the truth. Discipling others is a biblical mandate. It's not a suggestion. It's not, uh, uh, you know, disciple when you can or if you want to. It's a biblical mandate. We're commanded as believers to go make disciples. So if you're a seasoned Christian, if you've been a Christian for a little bit, if you're a seasoned follower of Christ and you aren't discipling anyone, then you need to start praying for someone to disciple. If you're a disciple of Christ, if you're a follower of Christ, you need to either be in a discipleship relationship where you are the disciple, you're learning how to make disciples, or you're searching for someone to disciple. Otherwise, if you're not, you're being disobedient to one of the most clear commandments of God to go and make disciples. James chapter 4, verse 17 it says, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. If you know that you should disciple someone and you don't, it's sinful. If you know that you should be sharing the gospel with someone and you don't, it's sinful. Now, I don't say these things to put you down, to put you to shame, because I'm guilty of it too. I'm guilty of those same two sins. I just want you to take your walk with Christ seriously. I want you to feel right now in this moment the higher calling that God has for you. Discipleship is not just for me to handle as the pastor. It's not just for the deacons to handle as the deacons. It's a commandment for all followers of Christ. It's my job as the pastor to equip you, to help you, to show you to, to be intentional about the church focusing on discipleship, which is what I'm trying to do. And it's not going to be perfect. It will never be perfect because I'm not perfect. But if discipleship isn't a church effort, then discipleship will never happen and this church will die. Now, I'm not trying to leave you on a cliffhanger about discipleship because we'll talk about it more later this year. Um, the series coming after Easter 
Uh, I mean, we're ending this one. We've got Palm Sunday, and we've got Easter Sunday. The series right after that, uh, Easter after Easter Sunday. We're going to be talking a lot about discipleship, evangelism, uh, talking through the life of Jesus. So don't think that right now you need to have it all figured out because I don't have it all figured out either. But discipleship, I do know this, it's time-consuming. It's very hard. And I think that's why a lot of Christians and churches don't focus on it too much. Because we live in a, in a culture that wants quick results, big results, with little effort. And discipleship is just the opposite. It is very slow. It takes a lot of work with little effort or little results to show for it in the beginning. But then after years of discipleship happen, that's when the results start flooding in. Um, there's a, a pastor that I follow quite a bit, and um, he's helped, helped me kind of mold uh, our discipleship path that I'm working on for here. And he said that if one person starts with three people, that year, and, and they go through a discipleship group for one year. That disciple has made three disciple makers. After two years, it's nine because those three are expected to go and find three more. And if you compare it to a ministry that's getting quick results with little, little effort, like an evangelist, they're reaching thousands. So if you, if you say an evangelist reaches a thousand people a year, Right, every year they're reaching a thousand. So after the first year they have a thousand, this one disciple maker has three. The second year they've reached two thousand because they're adding another thousand, and this one has reached nine. By around eight or nine years, the evangelist will have reached eight to nine thousand people. But the discipler, the one who started with just three, have reached over nineteen thousand. See, it takes a lot of work, and it's slow, and it's time-consuming, but it bears so much good fruit in the long run. Now listen, I want Shady Grove to continue the tradition, our story of making disciples. I believe that this church has been making disciples and has continued to make disciples even up to this day. But I want us to continue to be intentional about disciple-making because it's our job to raise up the next generation to be disciple makers so that this church doesn't die after us. And that's just fulfilling the vision of when this church was planted. Like the one who, I, I never met him, okay? That was a couple hundred years ago, but I, I've not met him. But the guy who planted this church, I guarantee he didn't say, I hope this church only lasts until I die. And after I die, I don't care what happens to it next. No church plant that I know walks into a church plant, plants a church, and says, I hope this only lasts for one generation. But generations later, believers will say, I don't care what happens after this generation. I don't care what happens after I'm put in the grave. I want to instill in you that I want this church to survive three, four, five hundred years from now. but it starts with us being intentional about discipleship. 
Because if we raise up a generation of people, of believers, who want to disciple others, who have an urge to fulfill their calling and their purpose of God to make disciples, then it will continue for generations to come. Every year, thousands of churches close their doors because they let go of two things, evangelism and discipleship. Thousands. I think last year, there's over 15,000 churches that closed their doors. I don't want to see Shady Grove be one of them. It takes more than just new conversions. Even though we celebrate with new conversions, it takes more than that. It takes us as a church to intentionally teach others to obey the commands of God and to model good Christian behavior to them through discipleship. So as we sing this last song, I know this has been a, a heavy message, but I want you to feel free to come up to the altar. I want you to feel free to pray wherever you are. I know, you know, that's not really a big altar that we have. It's just a front step. But I want you to take this moment as we're singing this last song to pray to God to send you to someone to disciple. Pray for God to send an unbeliever into your life to share the gospel with them. Pray to God, send me so that I can go and fulfill my purpose. And sometimes discipleship, it's not this clear-cut process. Sometimes it happens organically. Sometimes it happens with mature Christian believers just coming together and reading God's word together and learning how they can disciple younger Christians. So don't think if someone walks up to you and says, hey, do you want to be in my discipleship group? Do you want, uh, do you want to be a disciple of me? Don't take offense to it because sometimes it's just people coming together in smaller settings and sharing about what God has done and holding each other accountable. But as we sing this last song, I, I just want you to pray that God would send someone in your life that you can disciple, that he would send someone in your life who you can share the gospel with and pray for God to send you to continue his story, to be the Acts 29 as we sing.